Upstairs podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. So I'm sitting here in my my bedroom closet, which is actually where I record all of the episodes because it's um good for the sound instead of being in a large room with echoes and whatnot. And I just finished recording the last two chapters that I'm about to share with you. Um, they're the very last chapters. This is the end of the book. And it's a really complex feeling. I'm so grateful for your listenership. Um, it not only meant a lot to me, but also your words and your insights and your reflections helped shape my perception and did influence the writing process. So thank you for the energy reciprocity um, in your listenership and in your words. Um, I, wow, (laughs) I am about to go traveling. It's eclipse season, and I will be journeying with plant medicine again. And I had kind of wanted to finish this book before that so I could just be really um, clear. And whenever I've written a book, this is my second completed novel. It feels like I'm on like a life raft in the ocean or something. And it, it it's a process like there is some kind of like, we're going to make this happen no matter what happens in life <laughs> kind of thing. And I remember plant medicine was like, oh, my God why did I bring a a partway written novel into the plant medicine space? (laughs) But that's something for another day. It definitely also gave me perspective and was this really huge healing experience. Um, What else do I want to say before getting into these next two chapters? I think that um, moving forward, I am going to be creative about promoting this novel. I really care about this book. I love it. I love the feedback I've gotten. Um, I believe in it. It's a part of my heart. So if you um, have a platform and you've been enjoying this novel and you want to um, interview me about it, please reach out. If you want to share this book with people that are in your community or friends that you know would love the book, please pass it along. If you want to share any reflections with me, please do. As always, I love to hear. Um, And I think I'll be doing like a podcast episode or some in the future to talk about the writing process or to talk about the themes of the book. So if you have any questions that you'd like me to answer on the podcast about the writing process, about the creative process or about any of the themes in the book, I would really love to answer them. So please write me with that. The um, normal content warning that this book is for adults and please listen responsibly applies, I suppose, for every chapter, but these two chapters, maybe not as much, but we'll just say it for good measure because the whole book has been that. And of course, if you haven't listened to the earlier parts of the novel, the rest of the novel, go back and start from the beginning. And with that, I will leave you to the last chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. Thank you so much for listening.
Chapter 35 A vision during an eclipse in 2020 tells me to move to Portland, buy furniture and homewares, invest in homemaking. As in preparing for that event horizon, the move. My friend Stephanie Sundara and I record a podcast episode. Stephanie presents the idea that love never goes away. It just transforms. I am brought back to the moment of Aiden breaking up with me and a conversation over breakfast. He says our love is forever, and I hated his detached sunniness. But as we record this episode, I do see our love as the ocean and the way it washed me to another shore. All of my grad school friends and peak experiences the last few years. There is Stephanie, our date nights, our romantic friendship, the way we simultaneously spot one another from across the room on a first day of class, simultaneously have the urge to approach one another. Our bodies collide. Our voices collide, too. I like your outfit. What's your sign? And this original energetic collision over the years spirals to new and new levels of traveling the realms. I first begin spending time with Stephanie when Shane and I have just broken up, and she appears to me like an immediate love-is-only-changing-forms phenomenon. The way she tells me over a glass of wine how in love you can put your inner world, your thoughts, feelings, on the table in front of you and invite the other person to meet you in them. How she felt herself circling a dirt hole, a hole leading to some darkness within the earth, circling the perimeter about to fall, and had to confide in her love, I'm falling in love with you. And he responds, it's okay to fall in love. And she lets herself sink deeper into the earth. Our friendship creates a third thing, instantaneous psychedelic synchronicities and adventures in the world together, weather patterns. And there is Carla Palomino, an Instagram crush mutually. Carla, whose body makes extravagant shapes in conversation. I rarely see people as animated or wildly alive. She is an improvisational emanation of Eros, a pulse of Eros. She leads embodiment events that I start attending in Oakland. Greets me when we're still new friends by kissing the top of my foot at the entrance of her mansion where she lives with eight others. Today, an assembly of goddess-esque women, a display of fruit, elixirs. Carla inviting us to spiral inward to find a thread of raw truth and let it express on our flesh. Through her guidance, I meet an inner landscape, a kind of wandering through the desert, to find an oasis, to revel in the ecstasy of a wish fulfilled. People often have dreams of Carla after meeting or encountering her. Perhaps it's the way people sense she will change their life or hold a mirror to a deep wilderness inside of them. I'm one of the people who dreams of her. And when I dream of her, we always discuss it. It's always full of codes for us both, a soulmate. I first dream of her in a rose garden and see everything that she's creating coming to life. I trust her soul completely. Before I leave Oakland, I say goodbye to them both. We celebrate spring equinox together, dress up, 
and I moved to Portland a few days later with a commitment to travel often. It is through the mirrors of these friendships I somewhat suddenly forgive the way my life has panned out so far, that even though I'm not over Aiden, that I haven't managed to fall in love like that again, it's 2020 now, and I really hate I still haven't transcended or alchemized this. I've continued to struggle with men, feeling disenchanted, stuck, unsatisfied. I regularly fall into ecstatic peak experiences with Stephanie and Carla, and the thought occurs to me that it was the oceanic fallout of the love and loss of Aiden that even brought me here, to this shore, where I meet Stephanie and Carla, and I wouldn't trade in my life, wouldn't trade these friendships, for the life that could have been with Aiden, a return to the paradise I've been craving abstractly for years as though life was always some pathetic second to what I'd known before, and I'm just working to get there. But as I follow the thread here with the two of them, it does unfurl over the years into new experiences, encounters with teachers and teachings, encounters with friends and lovers, that do return me to a state of present, alive, eros. For the scope of our story, we won't get there together, so you'll have to take my word. I spend the pandemic sleeping in, cooking, working out, studying embodiment, connecting erotically with myself every day, a tantric awakening attached to no partner. I gain greater capacity to hold an ecstasy and an aliveness that has only taken me out when attached to someone else without being rooted within. I learn how to unravel, how to let life penetrate me, how to embody myself, that fullness of life. But first I learn how to really grieve, not the compartmentalization or working hard to structurally create a better life to relax into, which had worked, but not erased my grief. Carla helps me to be annihilated by the very force of nature within me I'd been trying to control for years. Grief and Eros. Grief as Eros. Chapter 36. A few months earlier. Mars retrograde of 2020 approaching. Mars retrograde, a transit I take very seriously see as a ceremony. I confront my years of grief and hunger and unfulfilled longing, how much it hurts, how unresolved it all is. I chance to tell Twitter I've been grieving something for years, that I want help and perspective. Though partnership hasn't come as easy, I do feel loved by the people, and often have had good luck when I ask the whole world for help. I talk to an astrologer friend on the phone who responds to this request, and we talk for several hours. I know this is probably annoying or tiring to hear, but don't you think your dad and Aiden are connected somehow in your process? She asks. I mean, he died, and Aiden had the accident and dumped me around the same time, and I know the whole Aiden thing brought up some attachment wounding. But like, what was your dad like? Was he really emotionally present with you? 
she asks. I mean, not exactly. We had a sweet connection, but also a huge distance. He kept out of the fray. When my mom, brother, and I were really processing something together, he'd just leave the room. And didn't Aiden, going up into the sky, crashing, in his own way, leave the room? I'm saying this, Sabrina, because maybe you really need to take this up with your dad, your dad's spirit. How? I ask. Put out a bowl of water and a candle and call his spirit. Spirits get thirsty, so you need the water. And just talk to him. Express your anger. Say whatever you need to say. When I'm home alone, I take her advice. I don't notice much immediately, but I begin talking to my dad for the first time in years through the vessel of a silver bowl of water. Mars Retrograde is approaching. Damien calls me. I haven't heard from him in years. I learn he's just gotten out of prison. I thought of you and prayed for you every day, he tells me. I just want you to know how special you are to me and how you matter to me, even though I wasn't able to be there for you as much as I would have liked. He tells me about the spiritual brotherhood he met in prison, how he changed his name, how important these men are to him. He loved prison. I feel vindicated that I didn't try to prevent that timeline I saw looming over him, how I was right to leave him alone, to let him go to prison without my protest. On the eve of Mars Retrograde, there are fires burning throughout the West Coast. A friend I've made online is passing through and is going to come over. He and I share an attraction. I'd confessed it, and he tells me he feels the same way. And full disclosure, he's in an experimental time period, exploring what and who life has to offer him. Working my recent skills around discernment, I allow this information to reach me soberly and not to fall into the rabbit hole of casual romance and the fantasy that it might be more than that if I end up feeling that way. I can remember what he honestly disclosed from the start. He comes over and performs his music for me. One song, A Girl's Name, we spontaneously say at the same time, that's what I'd want to name a child someday and look at each other surprised at this erotic possibility of creating life, the same life. He has a nervous disposition, and it confuses me. He's talented, attractive, seems like a traveler from another era, an American romantic. He seems too cool to me to be nervous. He talks fast, doesn't ask me questions, but then he listens if I assert myself, as I confess, I have this relationship to fame, like, I'm intending to be famous. I believe one can manifest it on purpose, like Lady Gaga did. His eyes widen. Me too. Tell me more. It's intense to be around him with a shared attraction that we don't act on, 
He's a visiting masculine presence the eve of Mars retrograde. He leaves in the night, caffeinated, to do an all-nighter on the road, and I wake up to a completely red sky. I take a hot bath with a chai tea at the very moment of Mars station, hear a rooster crowing from the neighbors. I take it all as a personal message from Mars, an opening bell for the ceremony. Within a few days of feeling like I've descended into some kind of funk, I'm unhappy, not fully as alive as I'd like to be. I just know something is off. I decide to take an edible and journey for a breakthrough. I know the edible will be challenging as they have historically been for me. I listen to a new album, Hi, completely amazed by one of the love songs. I empathize for a moment, if only in fantasy, the feeling of being so radically in love that my heart starts pounding and I come back into the hell realm I know, a feeling cast out of paradise. To love means to lose. To love is to remember my highest feelings. To open back my highest feelings is to remember everything, even the things that are hard to hold. And it's here that I see my dad's last years of life, his sickness, this time that we went hiking together when I was back home for the summer after my first year of college. I showed him a hike that was full of cacti. I felt nothing, no tiredness, and didn't think or register he might get tired because I expected him to be normal. I didn't think about his surgeries, his ailments, Maybe I didn't care enough. He was out of breath and stopped us. And I jumped a little inside, like, did I push him too hard? Why didn't I consider him more? In reality, maybe he was just standing in place, catching his breath. But now I see him additionally, folded over, hands over his knees, coughing. I remember the time I dreamt of him, emaciated, cold, out in the rain, and how scared I was in the dream that he'd die, how in the dream it was my fault somehow. I remember Aiden and the day of the crash, how it didn't occur to me to take him to the hospital, how I'd already decided weeks before that Aiden was invincible. So when he popped a Tylenol after hitting his head, I just assumed it was mild, I even let him drive home part of the way. I'm on the floor, shaking, frantically writing down my realizations that I don't accept weakness, that I don't accept the vulnerability of men, and I don't even know why. I was mad at my dad for dying. I was mad at him for being sick. I was mad the way I felt his illness could have been prevented if he'd made other choices leading up to then. I was mad at Aiden for crashing, for taking the risk to go up to the sky that day, twice, even though there was a turbulent weather warning that brought him down safely the first time. Why did he have to go back up when it was dangerous? Why did anyone have to fuck up and betray me? But what if they're just human? Can I accept that?
And I remember dad going on existing, going to family things with us, even vacations, being at my graduation, even though he was so sick. I call Aiden for the first time in years. He doesn't pick up. I call my mom the next day and ask, did dad live longer because he fought? Well, yeah, my mom says. The doctors say he gave us a few extra years. Other people with his conditions, if they hadn't fought, would have died quickly. Here, I just cry in a way that feels cleaner than any cry I'd had in years. I do miss him. It just washes through me for around 90 seconds, then emptiness. Aiden messages me. Did you mean to call? He asks. Yes. I'd love to talk to you, he says. We make a date. I'm sitting on the couch in the same place I recently cried clear crystalline tears of grief for my dad. How are things? I ask. My heart drops to learn he's living in a tent in the forest now. He's homeless and borrows indoor facilities from a friend, electricity, a wood shop, running water. His head injury was bad. He said that for a few years, he kept forgetting people's names and faces. He still doesn't feel cognitively the same. In the immediate aftermath, he confesses, I had no space for you. Like it was staticky in my head and I couldn't account for anyone else besides myself. I'd never felt so slow or incapacitated. I met someone in school who had a head injury, I said, and she described how afterwards she couldn't be around anyone who needed anything from her. Yeah, that's how I felt, he said. After some years passed, I started to remember a little bit more what it was like what we had. But also I was mad at you for a while. Why? I ask. I thought you were going to move in with me, and you didn't. I know I seriously pushed you away. And I wish you would have taken me to the hospital. I don't know. It could have made it better to get my head treated right away. Who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have made a difference. I'm so sorry, Aiden, I say, tearing up. I didn't realize it was serious right away. I don't know why I didn't think of it. I really wish I had, too. But it's okay, he says. I know I was just so embarrassed that I'd crashed that I was trying to play it off. I should have advocated for myself, but I was too prideful. I didn't even want you to go paragliding that day, I say. I wish I would have put my foot down that day, because you had that dream, and I'd had a bad feeling. I just didn't think the consequences would be so severe and tragic. Ugh, but it's not your fault, he says. I know I'm a stubborn asshole, and I was intent on paragliding that day. I don't think you really could have stopped me. A pause. 
he continues. I don't think I want to be with anyone, really, he says. I think I'll be alone for the rest of my life. I don't plan on being partnered ever again. But I think about our connection sometimes, what we had, and I long for it sometimes. I can't understand the way he approximates his future, the dryness of it. Why? Why let such love go to waste? I tell him about grad school, how my business is going. But over the years, I explain, I haven't found intimacy like what we had. Sex has been really difficult. I can hardly find any connection that even remotely compares. It's been devastating. You were really good at sex, and I can't find anything, anyone as good. Oh, he says. You were really good at sex, too. You were 50% of it. That wasn't just me. I hope you find better than me. He says this so warmly. I really let myself receive the possibility, the blessing of it from him. I grieved this for years, I tell him. And I know maybe it wasn't real love, it was just an illusion. I say this as I'd spent years picking it apart, but Aiden interrupts me. Stop, he says. What we had was real. What do you mean an illusion? The room, waving before my eyes, obscured by a film of tears, a rippling pool, sharpens into focus. It just evaporated so quickly, I say. It was there, and then it was gone. I think I loved you the best way I could back then, but I was addicted to you, and I lied a lot. Is that love? And you abandoned me, and was that you or your head injury? I don't know what was what. We did love each other. We had a true connection, and I'll always love you, he says. He adds, I wish I could go back and have told Kat I needed more time to close things off with you. Maybe like a two-week goodbye together so it wouldn't have been so abrupt and traumatizing. I grimace. I don't think I would have liked that. There's absolutely no way I would have been open to our relationship ending. I only wanted to be with you. How did things go with Kat? They ended he says. I thought they would. It seemed like that was a piece of closure, too. Either way, I'm sorry, Sabrina. I wish things would have been different. Me too. We cry together on the phone for a while. For years now, there was no clear passageway for my grief to flow through, like a tidal wave moving through a swampy maze. My waters would get stuck, lodged, frozen somewhere. But this time as I grieve, I feel God move through me all the way. I look gently at the room around me, taking the objects and the empty space between, 
the way the air feels infinite and timeless, the way the room feels the same, but different. I feel as though my love has been the ocean, and my love has also been the canyons it eroded and left in its absence. Thank you.